This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Perspective is a radio program that presents a Baha'i perspective on life through interviews. If you want information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you're welcome to visit the website www.baha'i.org. That's B-A-H-A-I dot O-R-G. Or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. Today I'm playing an interview with Karen Perry James, a Baha'i who grew up in New York City. She moved to Connecticut after getting married. She raised her two kids in New London. She was instrumental in bringing the Institute for the Healing of Racism to New London as a member of the Multicultural Coalition of Southeast Connecticut. I started the interview by asking Karen to describe what it was like growing up in New York. I grew up in Queens, the borough of Queens. For the school-age years of my life, I lived in Queens. And then when I reached adolescence, I moved to the Bronx, which was two very different experiences. I am the only child of a single parent. My mother was a black American woman. Um, She also was an only child. And uh, my father, who I did not know growing up, was a first-generation Irish-American. So my mother was black, and my father was white. As a child, I grew up in a very integrated, working-class neighborhood with friends of all backgrounds. I still maintain some of those friendships, actually. Mm. Um, And then I moved to the Bronx in middle school. I think I was 13, seventh grade, and... I lived in the Bronx, which was very different. It was more urban, and I still have some of those friendships. This year, I celebrated my 30th anniversary of graduating from high school, and I very honestly still talk to many of my high school friends, if not every day, every other day. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, we're very close-knit And there was never a time where you had lost touch? There was a time. There was a time from the time I uh, got married, I would say, until probably about five years ago. So it was probably about a 20-year period of time that I was out of touch with most of them. But there were some constants that never, that I never skipped a beat with, um, that I've we've been friends since I was 14. Mm-hmm. My experience growing up, I'm biracial, or that some people refer to as biracial. One parent is black, one parent is white. And so growing growing up in New York City, you know, it's so many different cultures that I could be assumed to be many different from many different backgrounds. Um, but I remember always feeling different. People often asking me, what are you? You know, you know that is a, a memory of mine growing up in whatever neighborhood I lived in. 
um, that was something that was a constant that I experienced. Mm -hmm. Though my mother as an African-American always had friendships, sincere friendships, close friendships with people from various cultural backgrounds. So we had African-American people in our home. We had white people in our home. We had Hispanic people in our home. These were my mother's close friends. Mm -hmm. That was just my experience growing up. Mm -hmm. um, as I became an adolescent, I kind of felt like I had to choose at that point in time. And so I um, identified myself as black and I my friendships were primarily with blacks. But prior to high school, I always had friends of all okay. kind of friends. Right. And the first borough you lived in was? Was Queens. Queens. And you said that was not as urban as the Yeah, it wasn't Bronx. as urban. I lived in a um, neighborhood, a mixture of single family and two family homes. And most of the people on that block were homeowners. But it was a mixture, a cultural mixture. It was... I would say probably primarily, I remember primarily African-American homeowners, but there were sprinkles of other cultures as well. And then when I moved to the Bronx, again, I lived in a middle-class building. It was a brand new building. It was like seen as a nice quote-unquote building in the community in which I lived. Um, it wasn't a housing development or anything. And so it was a nice, again, it was a nice mixture of cultures. We had whites, blacks, and Hispanics that lived in our building. But at that point, somehow, and I, it's hard for me to really identify what it was, I just was not wanting to feel that who are you thing. Right. And it was more urban so I was, I just gravitated more to the African-American kids. And that's, mm -hmm. that's how I identified myself when asked. Now, how come you guys moved to the Bronx? We actually moved three times while I was growing up. First, we lived in a community in, the, in Queens called East Elmhurst. And I lived there from birth till I was nine. And then an aunt, my grandmother's sister, got me a dog for Christmas. And she was sort of like a surrogate mother to my mother because my mother's mother died when she was five. So it was sort of like my grandmother got me this dog. And my mother, uh, we found out that the landlady did not want animals. And my mother opted to sacrifice our dwelling to keep the dog. Amazing. And so we moved to a neighborhood called Flushing. And Flushing was primarily a Jewish community. And at that point, although I lived in an integral, we lived in garden apartments. It was called Kew Gardens off of Casino Boulevard in Flushing. And although the neighborhood I lived in was integrated, my mother opted, I guess at this time, you didn't have to go to the school in your neighborhood. You could go to a different school if you wanted to. And my mother enrolled me in the school in the white neighborhood. There were only two kids of color in my class. I was one of two. 
it was a primarily Jewish neighborhood. I mean, all of the other kids, when you would go to their homes or even in the apartment buildings, there were all mezuzahs on the, in the doorway, and it was a very Jewish community. Was the school far away from you? From it house? was walking distance, oh, okay. but it was, it was, you know, a little further than the neighborhood school would have been, but it was walking distance. So we lived there for nearly three years, I think. We, yeah, I think we lived there uh, fifth grade. No, actually, we lived there fourth grade through seventh grade, fourth, fifth, sixth, and yeah, most of seventh. So almost four years. And, you know, these were nice garden apartments, but my mother, she was always, she was a very resourceful person. She was always striving to better her circumstance. And um, she had decided she wanted to move into a new development, something that was being built that would be new. So she put in applications all over the city, and she had even considered moving out of the city limits to, like, Poughkeepsie or upstate New York. And she was called for this particular building. And this building that we moved to in the Bronx was one of the brand-new buildings that she had applied for residency in. And so that's why we moved to the Bronx. It wasn't any desire on her part to live in the Bronx per se, Mm -hmm. but she had wanted to move into a new dwelling and, Mm -hmm. you know, because she saw that as kind of bettering her circumstance. Mm -hmm. So that's why we moved to the Bronx. Mm -hmm. And when we moved to the Bronx, I was in seventh grade. It was the spring of that school year. And so for that, the remainder of the school year, I took the bus from the Bronx to Queens oh. to to finish school, which when I think back now, excuse me? How long of a ride is that? Over an hour. Oh my gosh. Yeah, because you had to take two buses. I had to walk quite a distance to a bus called the, um, the 44, and the 44 went from uh, the Bronx to Queens. It was a bus that went you know from one borough to the other and then when I got to this kind of uh, central location Flushing downtown Flushing then I had to take a more local bus to actually where my school was and you know because it was April I think I you know I had to do that for like six to eight weeks but when I think back now you know as a parent myself um, when my daughter was you know 12 or 13 I can't imagine that I would have had her doing that, but I guess it wasn't too far-fetched at that time. You know, kids were a lot more, given more responsibility, and Mm -hmm. I guess parents saw the world as more safe, and it wasn't out of the ordinary for for kids to do that. And in New York City, kids travel public transportation to get to school anyway. They grew up doing that, so... Mm -hmm. But you really wanted to do it to finish your school there. Well, I really didn't. My mother didn't. I didn't have an option. Oh, she wanted you to finish the school there. Well, yeah. She just, I guess that was. Just made sense to her. Yeah, that's just, you know, because it was so late in the school year. Rather than transfer at that given point, you know, she figured school is almost out. Like I said, it was late April. So I just had all of May and you know two weeks probably of june so that's how that's how we handled it and then come 
the following year, by then, you know, I transferred to the local school. Mm-hmm. What did you do after high school? Well, after high school, initially, I got a job. There was a man that lived in my building who was worked in human resources for Manufacturers Hanover Trust. And he got me a job. And I was making, you know, a little, about $85 a week. And, you know, in 1976, I thought that was great. I had my first checking account. And I was working in the bank down, you know, in the Wall Street area district. And the reason that I went straight into a job is because I really hadn't done a good job at applying for colleges and getting accepted somewhere. I had sent out some applications, some place I hadn't heard back from. You know, when I think about it, my mother, the expectation was that I go to school, although it wasn't really forcefully pushed, but my mother was an orphan and so she didn't have a model as of a parent she was an orphan who was not adopted out so she, she was raised in an orphanage well she part of it part of her time she was raised in institutions but she also was kind of bounced around to different family members but what i mean to say is no one kind of mothered her no one took responsibility for her and and she was orphaned very early she was orphaned at five so um I say that to say is that my mother loved me dearly but there was a lot of parenting skills that she just didn't know about she just didn't she just didn't have the tools so I was very resourceful and you know when I think back, I did all everything by myself, and she loved me, and she was a very responsible parent, but she never came to like parent teachers meetings, she never came to plays or uh I was a cheerleader in high school, she never t- came to games, she didn't do those things, you know she always bought me nice things and took me places, but she never kind of did those kind of supportive things so in in applying for college, I kind of was kind of all my own with that, you know there was no guidance. So, you know, by the time September came around, I just kind of had slept the whole process and didn't put things in motion in a in a timely fashion. So I wasn't prepared to go anywhere when September came. And so I took that job. But I did want to go to school. I did want to go to college. So I began to work with a college counselor, which I don't know why I remember her name, but I do. Her name was Rita Barone. And she worked in a nonprofit agency somewhere in Manhattan, in a more inner city area. And one of my classmates from high school was working with her. And so she told me about her. So I went to her and through a series of meetings and interviews with her, she introduced me to a minority recruiter for Colby College. I had never heard of Colby College, didn't know anything about it, had never heard, been to Maine, never thought about Maine. But I had done very well on my SATs. I can't recall what I did, but evidently it was impressive. I was always bright. I was not a good student, but I was a bright youth. So this minority recruiter offered me a full scholarship. I can't even tell you how that happened or what, why, but... You know, I think part of it was 
fulfilling some quota that she had to fulfill. And then another part of it was that I was seen as a good prospect. Well, again, to kind of support my comment earlier that my mother didn't have some of these, some things that you would typically expect a parent to do, she didn't do. So, okay, so I decided I was going to this school. And so she was very excited that I was going to the school. You know, we never did any research about the school. We didn't know anything about the school. We had no money to go visit the school prior to me going. And because I didn't go in September, I was going to be a February freshman. Mm. And so we packed up and we got on the bus Greyhound. And my mother escorted me to Colby. And I spent one semester at Colby. And it was disastrous. It was a liberal arts college. It was referred to as an Ivy League branch, whatever that means. Um, But it's, you know, an affluent liberal arts private small college in Waterville, Maine. It's up on a hill surrounded by a beautiful arboretum. It's beautiful, beautiful campus. But 1,600 students, and out of 1,600 students, 30 blacks, 30 blacks. And of 30 blacks, I don't mean 30 African Americans. I mean 30 identifiable black individuals, some of whom were African, some of, and even the Africans were not of the same cultural background or even country. You know, we had like an affluent, I never forget this guy, his name was Sunday. And he was Nigerian, and his father owned a rubber plantation. He was very rich and drove a BMW. And then we had another guy, I want to say his name was Awetu, and he was Ethiopian. And his father was a political prisoner, and he was very poor. You know, it's like oh like these God. kind of, these vast differences. And amongst the African-American youth you really didn't even have two youth from the same state. You know, we had, a, there was a girl there. She was from Boston and you know, this, we're talking about the seventies and she was very angry and militant because she was, had experienced the busing in Boston. And then we had, you know, a girl from like a rural part of Virginia and she was very Southern and, Rural, you know, in the way she viewed the world. And uh, there was one other girl from New York, but she was from Harlem. And she was a, a very brown, complected African-American girl who was, she saw herself as being very different from me, as I, as did I see her from being very different from me. So even amongst these 30 black youth there was no cohesiveness amongst us. School was very social for me. I, you know, I said earlier that I still have those friendships and school, you know, I was bright. I never had to work hard in school or I never did work hard in school. I should have worked hard, but I didn't. You know, I always passed. I was bright enough to take the test or answer the questions or whatever without really working hard. So I had no study skills. So college was a big shock for me. You know, in hindsight, I feel like I could have weathered it better had I had the social support. But I was so miserable. I was so lonely and so lost there 
that that year was just devastating. All I did was cry. And in addition to it being so far away from home and so foreign in its appearance, in in its culture, um, it also snowed <laughs> the whole time we were there, you know. So there was snow when I arrived and there was snow straight through April. So the entire time, I, and I left in May. So it was, you know, snow the whole time. So that's what I did after high school. Mm. That was a disaster. I was asked to take a, a semester off. And the school asked you? The school asked. I, I was put on academic probation. And I was asked to take, I can't remember. I think it may have been a year I was asked to take off. And to go to a community college at home, kind of get my grades up and then come back. But I saw my saw that as a failure. So I was pretty devastated. Mm. Again, that was something that my mother wasn't able to help me through or at least help me to see beyond the failure. And so unbeknownst to her, I joined the Navy. Oh, my gosh. I was just going to get out. You know, I had, I had I, it was a, you know, flight. I have to leave. One day I was walking in a shopping area, Fordham Road in the Bronx, and there's like a little hut in the middle of the the shopping area, you know, which is a recruiter station. And I went in there and I signed up, you know, and I went through all the process and never told my mother till it was till it was a done deal. It was time for me to go. And then I told her. As usual, I scored very high on the test. I could have went into nuclear school if I wanted to, and but I didn't. I wanted to be an air traffic controller. Out of all, you know, they give you this book to look through everything, and I was like, this is what I want to do. What was your mother's reaction? She cried. She cried. The air traffic controller school was not available. Mm. Like, because, you know, the recruiter wants to get you in right, right. then, you know. <clears throat> which I know now, but I didn't know that then. <laughs> they got their quota. Yeah, right, exactly, another quota. So they told me what was available then, and it was uh, electronic technician. I went to boot camp. What was that like? That was um, okay. You liked it? I, like it is not really, I wouldn't describe <laughs> it as liking question. it. No, I wouldn't describe it as liking it. But what I realized about myself is... Um, I can thrive in that kind of force structure. I think I like sh highly structured environment. And so that was. And so, so you know, in that respect, I did okay. Was it co-ed? Well, not, not the unit, but the school was. I mean, you know, the boot camp was co-ed, but each unit was unisex. And so I got through that. And then I was in my A school, which they call it. So like you go through these different schools, you start with one school and then you graduate to the next school until you reach, you've been trained in your trade. And uh, while I was in my A school, I met my husband. I got married. Mm -hmm. I got out of the Navy uh, before finishing school. I, and I got married, and he stayed in the Navy, you know, for the for four years, I think he did. Mm -hmm. And we had two children. 
we had a set of twins. So my first pregnancy was a multiple birth, and I have a son and a daughter, Courtney and Kirsten, who are now 26 years old, which mm. is hard to believe. Yeah. yeah. Wow. We, initially, we lived in Virginia, Norfolk, Virginia. Now, my husband was stationed in Gaeta, Italy. And when he went to Italy, I was not given permission to go because I was termed a high-risk pregnancy. So I could have went on my own if we could have afforded for me to fly. But in order for me to take a military hop, in order for me to have the military pay for me to go, they had to give me clearance, medical clearance, which they weren't willing to do. So um, I moved it back home with my mother and close to the time it was time for my kids to be born, my husband received some temporary orders and came to New York, and he was there for the birth. Mm -hmm. And he was able to get orders, his orders changed, so he never had to go back to Italy. And so we were in um, New York for a while, and then by the time my children turned two, he was in Connecticut. And we came to Connecticut and joined him. And so that's why I'm here in Connecticut mm -hmm. now. Actually, it was like this week. That's so weird. I didn't even realize that. Yeah, it was this week that I ran into the Baha'i Faith 24 years ago. And um, I was at the library. That was a Tuesday. And I had, I had just moved to Connecticut Labor Day. And I, I was an at-home mom. And I wanted to find activities for my kids. And so they had a, a Tuesday story hour for two-year-olds. And so I started going to that. And we were in a small town of New London, Connecticut. And I guess, you know, when you're a new face, people rec notice that you're a new face. And so there was a woman, her name is Darlene Key, who had four children at the time, still has four kids. One of her four kids was a two-year-old, as both of my kids were two-year-olds. And so we met at the library. And she had, must have seen me a few weeks before and was observing me. And this particular week, this particular Tuesday, she decided she was going to make a friend. And we were both walkers. Um, so after the story hour, we were walking home with our children. And we were walking in the same direction. And she struck up a conversation with me and asked me, had I ever heard about the Baha'i faith? And I said, no. But something that I haven't shared yet is that through all these different neighborhoods that I've lived in and different experiences, I've always been very open to the religions of the people, the friends that I've had. And when I lived in Flushing, all of my friends were Jewish, and I've been to synagogue with them. When I lived in East Elmhurst, uh, my neighbor up over me was Catholic, and I used to, you know, as a child, seven and eight years old, walk to confession with her on Saturdays. And across the street was my friend Kim, who we're still friends some 40-odd years later. And her mother was the secretary at the First Baptist Church, and so Kim was a very active member as a child in the church. And I used to love going to church with her because I Baptist with the gospel music. And it was so vibrant. And I was an Episcopal. And so I belonged to Episcopal Church. And then when I was a teenager, 
I babysat for a Sunni Muslim family. They were black, but they were Sunni Muslims. And they were very interesting people. And I loved their lifestyle and I loved their dedication and devotion to their faith. So I've always been open in that respect. Um, when I was in the military, you know, you have an opportunity on Sundays to go to some form of worship. And one of the forms of worship that was offered was Islam. And I was curious. And so I began to go study with an imam that was, uh, there was a chaplain there on the base. And then when my husband and I got married, while we were living in New York, we used to even go to hear Farrakhan speak. We loved like Malcolm X. He's a great speaker, dynamic speaker, very passionate. We were just very interested in the what was promoted as life-changing, you know, this transforming opportunity to kind of attaching yourself to this guidance and what have you. So anyway, when Darlene uh, mentioned the Baha'i Faith, I hadn't heard about it, but I was very, like, inquisitive and interested. I wasn't closed at all. Um, she said, well, what are you doing later tonight? And I was like, well, nothing. She said, well, would you like to come back to an event that the Baha'is are hosting? It's a holy day celebration and we're having something here at the library. So it's very convenient. I knew where the library was. And so I came back and that was a birth of the Bob celebration. Now who's the Bob? The Bob is the forerunner to Baha'u'llah, Baha'u'llah being the founder of the Baha'i Faith. And at the time, I didn't know who the Bob was, but she just told me it was a Holy Day celebration. And so I um, I agreed to come. I went home and told my husband about it, and he was agreeable. And so we went back went back that evening um, to now, the event. The Bob is, is that Arabic? Bob is Arabic, and yes. It and it means the gate. Bob means the gate, and the Bob was the forerunner to Baha'u'llah, and so he was the gate the, to usher in a new age. Okay. So you went to the meeting? I went to the meeting, and what, I, and, and what the meeting entailed was uh, there was refreshments, which Baha'is are great for giving refreshments. They showed a tape of the congressional hearings in the 80s around the persecution of the Baha'is in Iran. You know, I didn't quite understand everything I was seeing or was watching, but what was memorable to me and was um, attractive was the fact that here was a room of seemingly disconnected people, like people that I would not associate with one another. There were black, white, young, old, blue collar and white collars people with young children and older people without, you know, with older children. And they were all very happy to be with each other. And they were really, they really were connecting like beyond friendship. I could, I, I wouldn't have attached it, the term at the time, like they were connecting like family, I mean, but looking back now, I know that's what it was. But at the time, I was just, they just seemed closer than anything I'd ever experienced before. 
and I just felt happy to be there. We, My husband and I and the children, we felt very comfortable and welcomed, and it was a nice experience. So you went to the meeting, mm-hmm. and then what happened after the meeting? Well, Darlene was an at-home mom also, and she had four children. One was of school age, and other three were preschoolers. And because I had just literally moved to town and I'd moved from New York City, I was all the way here in Connecticut, Darlene became my friend. The Baha'is basically became my social network. They used to have this group of Baha'is, this inter inter community group of Baha'is, because it was Baha'is living in different towns that did a lot of things together. They hosted a lot of socials potlucks, picnics, you know, whenever I was invited, we would go. And so it became our friends. And their children became the friends of my children. So that's really how the bond happened. But in addition to that loving bond and that friendship, as I began to learn about the Baha'i faith, it made sense to me and it resonated. You know, my father is white and my mother is black and the principle the fundamental principle of oneness in the Baha'i faith was just like such a you know light bulb was like of course of course that's how God would God would say that if I had to think of what God would say that made sense to me and then I began to study there were deepenings kind of gatherings hosted in the homes of various Baha'is in the area to study different aspects of, on the faith. Family life was something that I was very interested in, parenting and family life. And I loved everything that Baha'u'llah had to say about family life. I loved the prayers. You know, I loved the teachings. You know, I was very attracted to it. And then coupled with the fact that these people were becoming my friends and I sincerely liked being with them. Mm. That process took about a year and of me attending things and fostering deeper friendships with Baha'is. About a year later, I wanted to be more than on the peripheral of the community. I wanted to be a part of the community. That's when I became Mm. a Baha'i. And then you became very active in the Baha'i community. Yep. And I remember, you know, our dear friend Nat Rutstein passed away recently. Yeah. And I know that he had started these centers called the Institute for Healing Institutes Racism. for the Healing of Racism. And yeah. I know that you had started one in New London. In New London. Can you tell me about that? Sure. Um, well, let me just briefly say that Nat was like an uncle to me. And I met Nat Rutstein when I was a baby Baha'i. I think I had been a Baha'i maybe a year when I met Nat Rutstein. So it was in the early 80s that I initially met him. He's also from the Bronx. So we had that in common. He loved my family. He loved my mother, my kids, and we were very close. And when he started the Institute for Healing Racism and I learned about it. At the time, I was a member of a group 
civic organization in New London called the Multicultural Coalition of Southeastern Connecticut. And that was kind of a little grassroots organization that sprung out of a conference that was hosted by Benai Brith, actually. A World of Difference was the conference. Mm. So out of that, we started this multicultural coalition, and the premise was that we were going to advocate for children in their schools and put together a resource directory for parents and their children of color, where to go for this, what have you, to feel supported in the community. And But it kind of grew beyond that. And so that group, Multicultural Coalition, we became good friends. And we were looking for things and ways to make an impact on the community and to promote racial healing. There's a lot of hurt and negative experiences that had occurred with some of the members um, as well as other people in the community and that they brought to us and we heard about it. And so as a Baha'i and someone who was privy to knowing about this Institute for Healing Racism, I offered that as a suggestion for the Multicultural Coalition to get behind and to host and sponsor, which happened. But it it kind of happened in um, stages. I shared with members of the coalition the book that Nat Rudstein had wrote, um, To Be One. And when people read the book, specifically two white individuals on the in the coalition a white female and a white male they became so excited about the book because it struck a chord with them the sensitivity that he brought to the issue and the honesty that he brought and and him his own vulnerability and how he shared his own prejudices and how he grappled with them and and how he wanted to live his life armored with their support, these other individuals, we hosted the first Institute for Healing Racism, um, and we had Nat come um, the first time it was held at Connecticut College. It was a very, very successful event, and that relationship uh, really blossomed into some wonderful things. I mean, Nat was so well-received, and it really was such a ripple effect that people that participated in that initial intensive weekend went out and told other people. As a result, the first conference of the Institute for Healing Racism was held, I want to say maybe like two or three years later, maybe more, at again at Connecticut College. And that was a national conference. And people, participants in Institutes for Healing Racism across the country came to Connecticut College. It was phenomenal, you know. And still till to that to this day, from that initial seed that was planted here at Connecticut Valley Hospital, their staffing there uses Institute for Healing Racism as a model and all of their employees go through that process in order to help with sensitivity to racial issues in the hospital and and the and the staff member that brought it there was one of the original participants 
at the institute that we hosted at Connecticut College back in the 90s. You also were involved with a conference or a series of conferences called uh, Pupil of the Eye. Right. Can you explain, first of all, where the title came from and then what was the purpose of the conference? Sure. In 1993, um, myself and another Baha'i, Sharon Dixon Pay, attended a conference in Chicago called Vanguards of the Dawning. And at that con- that conference was hosted by a group of African-American Baha'is who were wanting to share their gifts of being a Baha'i as well as their cultural expression of spirit and how being a Baha'i affected their life and 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 what it did their own testimony so if you will and I at that point I had been a Baha'i for about 10 years and it was the most phenomenal experience I had had to date as I stated earlier you know I used to go to a Baptist church with my girlfriend and I loved gospel music and at this conference I had an experience of meeting Eric Doja, who um, formerly had been a Baptist minister, and he also had been a minister of music at Duke University um, for their gospel, their traveling gospel choir, their mass gospel choir. And he's a brilliant uh, individual and had, at that point, written several songs based on the Baha'i writings uh, using the genre of gospel music. And so that was just one of the, you know, many electrifying experiences I had at that conference. And so when when Sharon and I came back to Connecticut, we wanted to bring that experience to the Northeast. And so we we did a lot of talking about it, praying about it. And actually at that conference, Dr. Wilma Ellis encouraged us to do that. Now, who is Dr. Wilma Ellis? Dr. Wilma Ellis, at the time, was a counselor. And what's a counselor? Well, a counselor is a part of our administrative body. In every municipality, we have, wherever there's nine or more Baha'is, we have an elected body called the Spiritual Assembly. In every nation, every country, we have elected body of nine called the National Spiritual Assembly, and, and internationally we have an elected body that seats in Haifa, Israel, and that's the Universal House of Justice. And these are bodies that govern over our administrative functioning as a community, locally, nationally, as well as internationally. And there's another side of our administration that's more focused on loving the community and gently encouraging and so a counselor is part of that leg of the administration so Dr. Wilma Ellis was a counselor she's an African-American woman Sharon and I love her and we respect her and so she was very encouraging to us and asked us to consider bringing this to the Northeast which we did And so we did a lot of reading about what Baha'u'llah has said, Baha'u'llah 
again, the the founder of the Baha'i faith, what he has said about black people, people of color. And he uh, likened black people to the pupil of the eye around which the white circleth. And he talks about the pupil of the eye through which the light shines through. He also, there's also a passage where he refers to African Americans as fountains of light. So we decided to coin that phrase or use that phrase to as the theme for our conference. And we wanted to really give a, a forum for that spirit of fount, being fountains of light and, and sharing that. So we did have, host a conference and again, we had gospel music, but we had a lot of different things that we talked about and it happened at Connecticut College. Again, I, I lived in New London for 17 years mm-hmm. and Connecticut College is a wonderful institution. And so, yeah, we had that conference there and it was a wonderful conference and I have fond memories of it. And as a result of that conference, you know, the Baha'i faith was exposed to the greater community in a way that it hadn't been before. One of the attendees of the conference was the former mayor of the city and she was an African-American woman. It, You know, it was a powerful experience. Yeah. Now the kids are grown up. The children are grown. Mm-hmm. The children are adults. You know, mm-hmm. they're. Um, my daughter Kirsten is uh, a second grade school teacher in Baltimore. She's doing great things there. She lo- She's learning to love her job. <laughs> you know, it was a rough beginning, but she told me recently that she thinks that she's found her niche with second grade. She she really likes this age group. And my son is a lyricist, and so he's an artist, and he recently moved to California, and he is working hard and trying to navigate his way to stardom. <laughs> That's so, a tough road to hoe. Yeah, right. <laughs> and so what are you doing? So I live in Plainville, Connecticut, which is a little, very little working class town here in uh, west of the river, as some people refer to it, uh, west of Hartford, some midway between Waterbury and Hartford, Connecticut. I work for the state of Connecticut as an office assistant for the Bureau of Disability Determination Services. I've been doing that for about eight years. You know, work done in the spirit of service is is recognized as the highest form of worship by Baha'u'llah in this faith. And that's really how I try to address my job, how, to, how I try to do my job. Because quite honestly, I haven't finished, I still haven't finished college. I'm in a place where I would like to do more with my life. I re- really feel like I have more that I want to give. So in the meantime... While I'm in the job that I'm at, which is not a bad job, it's a good job, and I have great friends at work, but I just think that I haven't given all that I can give, and I think I need to receive some further training in order to be able to do that, which I'm working on. 
But in the meantime, this is what I do. And I live here in uh, Plainville. I live amongst a very vibrant community. We're a community of 12. So you're referring to the Baha'i community? The Baha'i community. The greater community is about 17,000. And Plainville is small. I think it's about nine square miles. So primarily... Uh, white, working-class, blue-collar town. I think there's some really small number, like 450 blacks that live in, in the town. You're one of them. And I'm one of them. I, I think they identify me as one of them. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, half, I'm half a one, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, yeah, I love this community. This community really calls me to stretch myself. Um, there's some young people in the community, young adults, who are very creative and innovative with how to share the faith with others. And I, I feel challenged by them to, to work hard at, at doing more. And I like that. I like that. That's great. Well, Karen, thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Karen Perry James, a Baha'i from Plainville, Connecticut. For a copy of this and other interviews, you're welcome to go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective. Hold me, hold me, make me, shake me into
what you want me to be. The ground. 
such an optimist When it's more fashionable to be a pessimist From what's in 75% of what we read here in you Well, I used to have a friend named Minnie Ripperton Who used to always sing when she was living Like fine wine, I like seeing the glass of life is half full and half empty I'm not saying sometimes life can be rough But never to the point of me saying I've had enough Long as my heart beats, I'm giving up That's why I say every day American, what do I see for tomorrow in the human plan? Is it possible for all people of the world to coexist? I say unity is only as big as our vision, and it must now strive to expand beyond the horizon. But truly, there's much guidance through the ills of society that stand in our way. So if the road is to harmony, be with the call. But if it's about discord, don't take the ride at all. Cause the world vision I see is the one we for everybody. This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station.